at least three generations were born in slavery and got children in slavery. It was very difficult to see that very documented because it was administration of an inventory. During the research, we found the name of the plantation director. And when I saw the papers with his name on it, I knew that our surname was derived from his name. So you know there's a connection to see those papers and his signature, knowing he must be an ancestor. It's a strange feeling. You don't have the feeling that you can be proud of him because he was the owner. So you have a double feeling about that. Hi, I'm Peggy Baufa and I'm a modern minority. Hi, I'm Maartje Duin and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Marcia Dwin and Peggy Bova, who both are part of a Dutch documentary podcast series on slavery called The Plantation of Our Ancestors. Several months ago, I actually heard a story on NPR about this podcast. And even though I don't speak Dutch, I had to learn more. Marcia is a journalist who spent some time in LA and loved podcasts like This American Life. And when she moved back to the Netherlands, she started making her own podcasts. And Marcia, her ancestors owned a small share of a plantation in the enslaved people in Suriname. But as the Netherlands started their own reckoning with race, she started to look a little bit more about the uncomfortable truths and came across Peggy, whose ancestors came from the plantation. And so the podcast itself is a really, really raw, thoughtful interrogation of the Netherlands' relationship with race and slavery. And we'll put links to it in the show notes, but we just had to having the conversation. Sharon, what do you think? It was really incredible. The two of them are so raw and so honest about their own experiences and even how their lives intersected, right? How they found each other and all of the feelings and the emotions involved. Literally the whole time as they were talking, I was on the edge of my seat just listening because it's just so fascinating to hear two sides of the same coin from generations ago and, and generations present. And a lot of that is still very much carried over in a lot of systemic things that we're experiencing here in this country or there in the Netherlands and really all over the world. And they touch on so many universal experiences that were just incredible to bring together. And and what I like most about the two of them is they clearly have been working and knowing each other now for a few years. And so it was completely like sitting with two very good friends whose paths were just brought together in an amazing way. I don't want to spoil it for, for the listeners, for you guys, but <laughs> it was, it, it's just, we asked them all of the questions that we had as we heard the story. They touch on things like guilt. Marcia talk, talks about her own guilt. They talk about their own experience of meeting each other for the first time. Like just all of those really incredible things that I know in my mind, I was curious about when I had first heard that story. This was by far one of my favorite ones that we've recorded. Yeah. And 
it's worth noting, we kind of take for granted, oh, the rest of the world experienced and processed slavery in a very different way. And maybe they're further out on it than, than we are, the consequences of that in our American heritage. But something, I guess I didn't read my history books, but the Dutch slave trade, the Dutch actually didn't allow slavery on their soil. So they had plantations in other countries. And so it's almost like it was out of sight, out of mind. And so how the society has kind of been reckoning with the consequences of that over the years is very different. But Marcia, her lineage can be traced back to Charles the Great, like only 10,000 people in Holland are of noble descent, whereas Peggy was the descendant of slaves that Marcia's grandmother owned on their yeah. plantation. And yeah. A few of the podcast episodes have been translated to English. There's a trailer. We'll put it in the show notes. But the podcast starts from a white perspective, um, the sense of discomfort. And it ends with a call to action for what we do now. And as they're actually preparing for season two, that's what it's about. How do we have a reckoning? And the response in the country has been overwhelmingly positive. And I think that's the thing that really drew me to this show is, and we're starting to see it in the culture in America as well as we shouldn't be afraid of these uncomfortable conversations. I think we need mm-hmm. to have them. And when it's just something that's just beautifully told and well-produced, and you, you'll be able to hear it in the way they, they tell their stories, I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with our new friends, Marcia and Peggy. Marcia, Peggy, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you, yes. Yeah. So when we first heard about your podcast series, I remember I was in the car with my wife listening to NPR and the story about these women who did a podcast about the Dutch slave trade and both of your very personal history with it. I remember telling my wife, I was like, turn up the volume. Uh, (laughs) I need to look this up. And I was in the back of the car. I was getting car sick, looking it up. And I emailed you immediately. Mm. Uh, Because even though most of our show focuses on the American minority experience, the story that you told and you researched was just such a unique journey and approach that I think needs to be heard by more people. Yeah. and But before we go into that whole journey, what's a meaningful story from your youth? Well, my name is Peggy Baufa. And when I grew up in Schiedam, it's a little place near Rotterdam. And as I grew up there, I learned to live with yeah everybody because we... Uh, lived in a neighborhood where not too many black people lived. So we had to adjust. And then, yeah, a lot of people just didn't really, how do you say, they, it didn't really matter because they, they just loved the family. So I live with my parents. I have a little brother and a little sister. Little, not so little, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm the oldest. And we I grew up in a very loving a black family, black father, black mother, and that was my my goal. As if I would grow up, I would find my own loving black family to live. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> In America, a lot of black people, be it African American or Caribbean American, are a little more removed and not knowing where they come from. Did you? Uh, and I believe your family ethnically is originally from Suriname. Did you always know that growing up? Yes, yes, yes. As we grew up as well, my father as my mother did made a lot of effort to learn us about the country where they were born. They told us how, how they grew up there, how they lived there, and all the nicest things uh, they did over there. And they told us, when you grow up, we will travel all together. And we will show you the country where we were born, Suriname. 
So your mom and dad were born there, though. Yes, yes, my okay. mom and dad were born in Suriname. Yes. So, Marcia, I want to shift to you. Can you tell us a story of growing up? Yes. Well, I also grew up in Rotterdam. So uh, yeah, Peggy and I didn't know each other at the time, but we grew up uh, not too far from each other. But my most meaningful youth memory, I guess, would be the vacations we always had in Zeeland. That's a province uh, south of Rotterdam. It consists of islands and it has a lot of beaches. And there's an estate from my family. And my great-grandfather used to yeah, live there with and my grandfather grew up there with his brothers and sisters. And yeah, my parents had a gardener's house there. There's a cottage where the gardener used to live and we always used to have our vacations there. And my mother's family was there too. And, and there would always be at the end of the day the farmer who was um, renting the, the land that belongs to an estate. So the cows were his and he was milking the cows. And as children, he would always bring us to help there. And this is one of my most cherished uh, memories of my youth. And recently, I've through this project that we've done, I've come to see all of that in a different light. Like how strange it was that as a daughter, as a heir of that estate of my great-grandfather, yeah, it was natural for us to be taken along by the farmer who for generations long his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather were also part of the estate and they all rented the the land eh? that was my family's and so there was this relationship between those two families a relationship of dependence and inequality as well and yeah i've come to look at it differently now now that i'm grown up then as a child i i didn't realize how much uh, of yeah, a class difference there was. It was just natural. Well, Marcia, I'd like to dig into that for both you and Peggy. When you were growing up, going to that farm, what did you want to be when you were a little girl? What did you I wanted want to, to be, be a farmer. <laughs> I wanted to be like a, a farmer's wife. Yes, that's what I wanted to be as a small child. And then my mother would say, but then you have always have to milk the cows. You can't ever go on vacation. Uh, so I, I quickly g- gave up on that. And then I wanted to be a journalist from, from a very young age. And uh, that's what I s- stuck to. And Peggy, how about you? Well, when I grew up, I always find it interesting uh, when I saw lawyers on TV Lawyers. So when I yes, lawyers because they come out for the rights of people, and mm-hmm. I always ha- felt the need to whether if people did something what they ca- can do or cannot do that they have somebody who would help them to defend their rights. So I I found it interesting law. So I just tried to see which jobs I could find working with the law because uh, uh, to study as a lawyer it's a long uh, study so i just thought well how can i work with the law and do a little bit of the same work but more on a social uh, base so i end up with education where i studied social law and not only social law but also the law that the government in uh, the netherlands uh, and so you have to work with the social law for the people who really need help. So that's the kind of thing where I very much interested in. And, and that's uh, actually the work I still do. That's fantastic. You both are so different. A farmer's wife and a social justice lawyer. <laughs> 
Marcia, I know you and Peggy have, have told the story many times already, but how did the idea for the show come to be? It actually starts at that family estate when I'm talking to my mother and I'm addressing a subject that I've always tiptoed around, like what is this family history of nobility and what does it mean really? Because my mother is a baroness, so that means she has a nobility title and uh, it was always something that we never really got around to really talk about how that came to be and what is in our family tree and how did we ever get that title and I, I wasn't really interested in it either because I'd rather just be in Amsterdam with my progressive journalist friends and, and not talk about class differences and so and it was a bit an uncomfortable subject but I have to face that anyway and this uncomfortable feeling was increased by the recent Black Lives Matter movement which in the Netherlands has the form of the anti-Black Pete movement. What does that mean? Well, in Black, Black Pete is a Dutch tradition that Black Pete is a blackface character and he's a servant, mm. more or less, who helps Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas is a children's holiday. Uh, Sinterklaas is a figure, he's a bishop who comes from Spain every year around November and he hands out presents to children and he has a helper and this helper is Black Pete. And yeah, it, it is, it's obviously very racist. I mean, for you in America, it's very obvious it's racist. But here we haven't really addressed that issue until 2011, when two activists, Quincy Gario and Jerry Luther Afrie, have started protesting this and saying Black Pete is racism. And yeah, they started... Those two protesters, were they white or were they black? No, they were black. They were black. Yeah, one is African and from Ghana, Ghanaian descent, and the other... The other one is from Curaçao, which is also or used to be a former colony of the Netherlands. Well, I'd, I'd like to flip the question to Peggy for a second. So growing up in the Netherlands with Black Pete being in the media, it sounds like people weren't saying anything. Was it just kind of this accepted, well, these people are just saying this racist thing. Let it be. We got to move on with our lives. Like, What was the perception of call it race in the Netherlands up until those protests started in 2011? Well, actually, a lot of people knew that there was a group that didn't like Black Pete and that they were standing up and telling other people that uh, they should look how much damage it could bring to a minor group in the Netherlands. Hmm. And you heard uh, a lot of stories on the news Sometimes you read some story in the paper. Sometimes you heard some stuff on the radio. But it, it was never really picked up by the real mainstream media because they always had something like, well, it's just a little group, so we don't have to give them much attention because it will go away eventually. So you try to adjust. When I was growing up, I did some sports. And when I did the sports, then uh, you had always the celebration, the end of the year, December, and they always celebrate with Santa Claus and Black Pete. And as I grew older, I had more problems with it because I didn't feel like I was respected because they always made some jokes and they always liked to make some jokes like they were talking Suriname language and then they just left, just a, a bit of moking. And... I didn't feel I didn't feel right. So I had something like, well, I, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. So I eventually stopped the sports and then you're not 
really connected to the the people that celebrate the the party because we grew up and at home we didn't uh, celebrate the party or the festive but when you go to work then also at work you had sometimes some colleagues said well we have to uh, spread some candy and then i think we have to get some uh, black face so we actually look like Black Pete and then we wow. were going to share wow. the, the candy. And then when you were at work, just working, minding your own business, just one colleague comes and, yeah, yeah, you have some candy. And and I was like, really? <laughs> I'm I'm an adult now working at a place just, and, and you're, how do you say it? I didn't feel respected because they didn't even ask me, well, what do you think of it? Or, yeah, so I, something like, well, you have, you work at a workplace and you don't want to make any trouble. So you don't actually speak out for, I don't want this or something like that. But I just showed them that I wasn't open to party with them or to take the candy or I, I had something where you, you do your thing and I do mine and I just do my job and, and I will leave. So that was a bit the, the attitude that I gave myself because there weren't a lot of people at the workplace that just got up and said, well, are you sure that uh, everybody's okay with this? Mm-hmm. Because it's actually more, they, they say it's a kid's party, but then when you're adult and you're at work and your colleague just blackface himself and begins to throw candy on the table because black pete shares candy and it's a bit awkward it was really awkward and there are not a lot of city halls that that still celebrate the festive just at, at the workplace they make sure that they have a separate room and then they ask everybody who wants to be a part of the festive of the Santa Claus party with Black Pete, and then people can write in, and then everybody who's there wants to be a part of that, and also with their children. So uh, a lot of city halls adjust it mm-hmm. by asking people who, who wants to be a part of it or not. But even so, what, what's, what's interesting is it's your first experience is it's this normalized part of society and culture, and even with the asking permission and putting it in a room, it's almost even though you're boxing it away in a room, you're still saying this is okay. Not right. that this is blanket, not allowed, but okay, we'll just put it in a room over here so people can still do it. So it went from normalized to accepted almost. Yes, yes. And we didn't really had a choice because at my workplace, the majority of the people were white, so they don't have a problem with it. And then when the minority is black, sometimes I'm the only black woman at the city hall because I work uh, through the whole Netherlands and I come also in very small places. So then it's a bit awkward when you say, well, I object and I don't want you to celebrate this party where I'm at. So, But the the last years, I just said they, they have a separate room. And they ask who wants to be a part of the the celebration. And then they invite their children and the children get some presents. And if you want, you can write in and you're you're a part of the party. And if you don't want, you don't have to be there. So I'm very glad that they don't oppress on the working place. Because one time I didn't have a choice to say, well, I don't want to be a part of this. I was just working. And then suddenly... The colleagues black face himself and then uh, starts uh, throwing the candy. So right. then you can say, "For well, I'm I'm gonna leave right now." It's a bit awkward because I was working. So, but I'm very glad that they make it an, a part activity 
So you can choose if you whether want to be a part of it or not. So I'm fine with that. But do they have it in a separate room because they assume that some people will be offended by it? Or is it just something that they're not even aware of, but they just say we'll do it in a separate room because for the people with kids? No, I think that as the media start spreading the news that a lot of people were offended by it, they start thinking about it like, well, we can't oppress it to anybody. So we have to ask the Mm. people first if they want to be a part of it. So they really thought about it because they heard that a lot of people were offended or sometimes they don't want to be part of the celebration. And different people have different opinions about the celebrations. So that's why I think the staff union was thinking about a a way to make sure that the people who were part of the, the festive, the celebration that they really wanted to be there. So you won't have to be in an awkward situation. But I think we have to explain. This is also what we call the Dutch polder model. The podcast Rough Translation by NPR. Yeah, yeah. They've actually done an episode about the Dutch black peat tradition where this is explained. How in the Netherlands, we call it to polder, polder, polders. It is like how we always meet in the middle. We always want to meet in the middle. So we get a little bit of that. We get a little bit of this. Oh, oh, you protest both both sides. sides And then we all have to agree with each other. So, okay, you don't like the tradition. Oh, you think it's racist. You know what? We'll do it in a separate room. That's very Dutch. And, And if you listen to that episode, you never really get beyond that phase. And that's highly frustrating Mm -hmm. for... uh... Well, and so that's, to me, that's the societal context in which you presented the narrative of your show. So how do you get from Black Pete's a thing, there's both sides about Black Pete, there's protests in 2011, Black Lives Matter starts to happen in America five or six years later. And I guess the question is, where's the spark of inspiration that gets you to your personal story, your realization of how you came to Peggy and how you embarked on the project. Yes. Okay, so there was this growing awareness, you know, like, okay, there's the Black Pete discussion, but there's also the remembrance of the slavery past. On the 1st of July, in a park in Amsterdam, in a neighborhood where I used to live, there's always a big parade of descendants from enslaved people who dance in in the streets and they all wear traditional garments and... They have the drums beat and they they make a lot of noise and it's a very happy but also solemn celebration. And then they walk to the park all across the, the center of town and there is a remembrance of the abolishment of slavery. And I used to live there for, for years and I always saw them coming past and I thought, you know, that this is so strange. What is this and why... Why do I feel such a distance from this? Why is this not a national remembrance day? Like the 4th of May, that's when we remember a memorial for the people who who lost their lives in the Second World War. And why don't, why is this memorial on the 1st of July? Why is this something that mostly people from Suriname or, or the former Dutch Antilles come to? Why do I see so few white people here? And why... Am I feeling like I don't belong here? Why don't I feel this part, this is Dutch history? Why don't I feel like this is my history as well? So, yeah, I took my recorder. This was 2018. And, yeah, I just started recording and recording conversations with people. And then I 
kind of heard myself say, okay, so we have this family estate and, and I have this long lineage, my mother's family of, of nobility and of this high class family and yeah, family tree that traces back uh, centuries and centuries. You know, there might be some traces of slavery in there as well. So, yeah, at a certain point, I heard myself uh, <laughs> say that to, to someone who was there to uh, commemorate his ancestors who were enslaved. And he said, well, what are you, why don't you go look for it? You know, what are you, what are you afraid of? And I thought that was a very good hmm. question. So, yes. That's a loaded that is a, that is a yes. really good question. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, because I, I admitted to him, I'm a little bit scared. Uh, of what I'll find mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. What, why it's not you it's your ancestors he said yeah that's true that's true right. and then I started delving into my family tree and yeah no, I, I just started googling actually my mother's family name and then slavery and my mother's family name and plantation and my mother's family name and Suriname and yeah I got all sorts of hits <laughs> and I went to the, the national archives And a genealogist, someone who was an mm -hmm. expert in family trees, he helped me. And he found out that I had all kinds of ancestors who played some kind of role in the colonial past. But there was one, the, the grandmother of my great-grandfather, the one from the family estate in Zeeland, who used to be the owner of a 172nd part of a sugar plantation in uh, Suriname. So in 1863, at the abolition of slavery, the plantation had 73 owners. They didn't live in Suriname. They all lived in Europe or, or in other places. And they were compensated. And that is the, yeah, that's uh, still a very weird, wicked thing to think of. Because not the enslaved people or the, the people who were freed from slavery got compensated, but the owners of the plantation, they were compensated for yeah. their loss of inventory. And they got 300 guilders per enslaved person or per yeah, freed person, as you can say. And it was very exactly noted that yeah, the administration was very impeccably done because they needed all the owners and all the enslaved people. So I saw this list of all the owners and there was my great, great, great grandmother. And I also saw the names of the enslaved people. And the genealogist said, well, this, I think, is a very unique name. I think all the people who are called Bauva now come from this plantation. And, you know, their descendants may still be alive. So I started Googling at the name Bauva. And that's how I got in touch first with Peggy's cousin and then with Peggy herself. And I thought, yeah, all the while I was recording because I thought this might, may actually be something that's worthwhile for, yeah, for a Dutch audience to, to hear as well. Yeah. So, Marcia, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you there because Peggy... I'd love to hear your side of the story. What was happening in your life and how did you get in touch with Marcia or how did she get in touch with you? I've always had an interest in the researching of my family history. And then I researched it, let's say in 2009. And I went to an evening where you can meet at the archives when you can see some administration from your family names. And then I would find a lot of names, but I couldn't put people that were related to me. I could put them in the right order because I knew the details of my grandfathers and grandmothers. 
and I also had their names, but I missed, I think, about some like six or seven generations. So it was a, it was a really a puzzle to find out, okay, but who was their parents? And you don't have their administration, you have no papers, no family books. So that was very difficult. So I started with it, but I got a lot of names and I didn't know how to put it in the right order. So I actually just stopped. My father got sick and a lot of years we were very, with the whole family, we were very busy with taking care of my father. So I just left everything. In the meanwhile, I worked, I got a daughter. My daughter is uh, right now, she's seven years. So I was very busy. And then suddenly I got a call from my niece, Jessica, and she called me and she said, well, I was um, uh, contacted by a journalist, Marcia Down, and she wants to, that was, I think, about 2018, mm-hmm. I guess, Marcia? Yes. yes, yes, 2018. So the, it was October and I got a call from my niece and she said, yeah, well, there's a journalist and she wants to contact you about uh, the family history, especially the history of slavery in Suriname. So she asked me, are you interested in a conversation with her? I said, yes, I I would like to have a conversation with her because I'm very interested in what she can tell us. So my niece gave my phone number to Marcia. And then I think uh, within a week, Marcia called me and she introduced herself and she said uh, that she was researching her own family history and that she found out that her one relative was a part owner of a plantation in Suriname. And the name of the plantation was the plantation where my family comes from. So I was very interested. So I said, okay, come at my place if it's okay with you. And then we can have the conversation. And then I can show you the research that I've done. And then we can put all the research together and see how far we come. Because I really wanted to know how many generations there were between me and the very first ancestor who was born in Suriname and and was given the surname Baufa. So that was very important to me because I didn't know who she actually was. So I've always been interested in learning more about the part of slavery in Suriname and what the family go through. So Marcia come to my place and then we had a conversation. I think the first night she came to my place, I think it was about 8.30 that she came and she left at, I think, 11.30 or 11.45. was very late. She still had to drive home. And I told her that I found, I found it a very pleasant uh, meeting and I was looking forward uh, to working together with her to do some more research. So that was actually the start of a very nice friendship, but not only a friendship, but also the research, what what we did together, because she was actually uh, a bit surprised because she first had a conversation with my niece and my niece didn't know so much about the history of, of Suriname and the family. And I knew a lot more. I had more books, more papers, and also the research that I already done that I put together and and I shared it with her. And she said, oh, I I have this also. And so it was for her very nice to see that a a very young person uh, as the same age she has was also very interested to have this conversation and to share the research. 
And I think that was uh, very enlightening for Marge because she was a bit scared how I would react. And uh, she thought, well, this girl is going to hang me up or uh, be very defensive. That's (laughs) what I wanted to ask. (laughs) Well, again, similar to like what I observed growing up in Alabama in the South, black and white people work together. They go to school together, but they don't. And this less so today than before, but they don't socialize together. So this white woman calls you, calls your niece, right? To ask yes. about the heritage of slavery. And what, what I love, what the beautiful part of the story isn't just the story that you guys wind up discovering and telling together, but was the friendship that formed. But I, I mean, it sounds, Peggy, like you were like all open to having this conversation, but Marcia, it sounds like you were a little afraid <laughs> to go down this path asking a black woman whose heritage is slave as the white person to say, I yeah, want to learn that, that has a little history because she searched me on Facebook and then she saw all my reactions because I'm very, I'm very pro-black. That's great. Yeah, very outspoken, yes. So she was scared that she would have a conversation with a very conservative young woman who was very pensive. Not, not conservative, and, uh, progressive. I, I, I thought... That our first conversation yes. would be yeah. about, uh, hey, you give me back my money, my money for my ancestors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but actually, I think that the conversation was very warm because I thought it takes a lot of courage to step up to someone and tell them I researched my family history and there is a connection with my family history and your family history. I think it's very brave of Marcia to not only find it out, but also to even look up to a descendant of the people who lived in slavery. And then also curious to know with which information I have about the actually, you could say, joint history we have. I would like to call it naivete, actually. Not so much bravery. I mean, I did find it nerve-wracking to get in touch with you and with Jessica, your cousin. But yeah, I really didn't know at that point what I was getting myself into. Or I didn't know as much about slavery, really. I just had this undefinable feeling of unease curiosity like there's something and i don't know how to engage with it there's this slavery past there's this black peak discussion and I, I don't quite have the tools to talk about this i feel like this is a taboo and that's what interested me like okay i think this is a taboo in in my family i think this is a taboo in our society and that's what drove me but i really didn't know i mean at the moment i was at your doorstep i still thought i was going to make a program about white guilt about my sense of unease and that that would be the driving force behind the the podcast that i was about to make and then i was so surprised to hear from you uh, that you didn't care much about my feelings of guilt but you just said no let's find out what happened on that plantation you know this is what i know but maybe you can tell me more maybe you have some sources in your family that can tell that are like papers of ownership or something you know so i think that gave me immediately a sort of a sense of determination like ah okay and we actually have some factual things to find out together And through your interest in what happened on the plantation and your family tree and your lineage and the people whose names you wanted to discover, your ancestors, 
it became much more concrete. Whereas uh, up until that moment, it had been this vague sense of unease. And, and, and this slavery past was something that I knew very little about. And that was some big, undefinable, dark, dark era. And yeah, actually together we started to break it down and to really go through our family lineage, go back to the past, like, okay, so where did this start and how did this happen? And how did we end up in 1863 with my great, great, great grandmother getting paid and your great, great, great grandparents getting freedom? Yeah. What were some of the highlights of what you learned? Um... Oh, well, a big question was how my great-great-great-grandmother, who was uh, the wife of the commissioner of the king, so she was in a high-class Dutch society, how did she live in, in Zeeland and The Hague and never set foot in Suriname and still got to own a part of a plantation? How did that happen? And what did she actually know? Or what could she have known? And that was also a question that I had to answer for my mother because I took my mother with... I I engaged my mother in this whole research and she was quite hesitant to engage with it in the beginning. But that's an important thing, isn't it? Like in America, the slaves were in America Mm -hmm, with the mm -hmm. American slave owners. In the Netherlands, you guys stayed up in the Netherlands... And you kept the slaves right. in the country. And there's almost this, like, I hate to say, comfortable yes, distance. That's something it. actually that started to happen at the end of the 18th century. The, the, the plantation owners used to be people who actually came across from Europe and went to start to colonize Suriname and started plantations there. And then those plantations would go to their children and their children and through inheritance. But then at the end of the 18th century, there was a big crash on the stock market. And uh, a lot of those plantations lost a lot of profit. And then they were all sold in shares in Holland, like banks would buy them. And they would have their middleman in Suriname and they would look after the profits of the plantation. But the real the shareholders, the, the owners used to live abroad and they would never set foot in Suriname. They just had some middleman take care of business. and Let the profits roll in. Right? Exactly, exactly. And that's what happened in the 19th century. And, and it was not very good for the enslaved people on the plantation. The people in Holland just cared about the profits and they knew nothing about the circumstances or very little. In the course of the 19th century, some more information came through to Holland, but it was just a stock share for them. Like you have shares in any other company. They didn't have any emotional or, 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 yeah. So, Peggy, as you're going through this research, you knew of your descendants. You knew of what happened. But as you actually started to work with Marcia to kind of uncover almost the economic history of what was going on, what was going through your head? How were you feeling? I mean, beyond just the the enlightenment of discovery, satisfying the curiosity, you're uncovering a much almost financial connection. Yes, it was very, let's say, difficult for me to see that family relatives that lived in slavery, there were at least three three generations that were born in slavery and lived, got children in slavery. It was at least three generations that were, how do you say it, documented in a list as an inventory. They were not seen as people where you can list a whole administration and where they tell you, oh, this was her a profession or 
this is what she liked and this is what it was her love and she got married or no you just see an inventory list and then with the names and then the ages that they have and then you can see which work what kind of work they did on the plantation so it was very difficult to only see that that was very documented right but in a very unpleasant way because you didn't feel there, there, it was administration of a family, but it was administration of an inventory. So you miss the stories, you miss the yeah, you you miss a lot of information. So that's difficult because here you have the history of the ancestors of Marcia who were they say they have a, a, a certain status in their life, mm-hmm. and then uh, you have your family on the other side, and they were just part of an inventory so that was very difficult and then we also during the research uh, we found papers of the name of a plantation director it was a French man his name was Bouffare and when I saw the papers with his name on it I just felt I, I, I immediately got a sort of a headache because I just knew that our surname was derived from mm-hmm. his name. So you know there's a connection between him and yeah, and then you see the paper, you're looking at the paper where he signed. You just see his signature and then yeah. you see his name. His name is Bouffare and our now our surname is Baufa. So wow. they they just slashed some letters because if he would uh, die then we would inherit some mm-hmm. of him belongings what he would left. So that's why they give you a surname that is derived from his name, but it's not Mm -hmm. exactly the same. You're not entitled to get his belongings. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's something that makes that connection very real, right? To actually see that document. Yes, to see those papers and his signature, knowing that he must be also an ancestor. So it's a bit of a strange feeling you have because you don't have the feeling that you can be proud of him because he was the owner. And that that was also the way he treated uh, the relatives. So you have a, a double feeling about that yes yeah and i know the answer to this but just for our listeners did you both go back to visit the plantation yes 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 march and we had a joint trip to Suriname with march and her mother and it was very special day we went with my youngest brother that still lives it's a little brother from my grandpa and he lives in Suriname. And I asked him if he wanted to go with us. So he came with us. And I also have an aunt. She lives in Orlando in in the United States. And she was also on vacation in Suriname. And then I asked her if she would like to come with us. So it was actually three generations of my family who went with me. So it's me, the youngest generation, and then my aunt, and then my grandpa, his little brother. So it's three separate generations. And then we went to the plantation and then I did a libation there on the plantation in honor of my ancestors who lived in slavery on the plantation. Because at least three generations of Baufa have lived in slavery with their children on the plantation. So that's why I I felt a need to do a libation there to honor them. 
and that we will never forget them because no other family ever went back to the plantation. Wow. Marcia, what about you? So you went down as well. Yes. And you took your mom and your mom, I think we were talking a few months ago before you embarked on this project, kind of had a very different view of your history. And now she comes down. What was your mom's reaction? It made a great impression on her, really. And maybe on the day itself of the visit to the plantation, she was mostly bewildered because she really, yeah, she didn't know, although I gave her a lot of homework to do and books to read and all that, she didn't really know what to make of it. And it wasn't exactly a beautiful place, either the plantation. Eventually we did come to a place on the river where Peggy did uh, yeah, the libation with her aunt and, and that was very pretty. But yeah, it was all, the whole emotional value of it was past her. I mean, went, yeah. She didn't really understand it, but it did take some time to sink in. And I'm still talking about it with her. And it's more than a year ago now. And it made such an impression and it has really, really changed her view on the subject. And yeah, it, 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 yeah. What, what do you mean it's changed her view? Like, yeah, how? What, yeah. In the beginning, when I confronted her with, uh, okay, so I want to do this and I want to make a podcast about this and uh, I'm going to relate our family history to the slavery past. She was like, well, why do you have to dredge this all up? You know, is this really necessary? And mm. she was a bit nervous that the whole family would be angry with me and she didn't really see the use of it. But she also didn't know much about it. So pretty soon after the, after our first conversation, she was curious anyway and she started helping me and, and, and came up with old pictures and so And we even found a picture of that great-great-grandmother. And yeah, I just started bombarding her with information about the Dutch slavery past, which culminated in our visit to Suriname. Yeah, but this this visit to the plantation and, and seeing Peggy and, and her aunt yeah, do this ritual near the river. And also after that, we went to some other places in Suriname and we saw a museum with remnants of artifacts of that were used in the time of slavery. And yeah, it made a big impression. And then, yeah, that I thought that was really, yeah. Well, I, I would imagine it took it from the abstract thing in a museum, thing in a history book to a very yes, tangible yes, reality. Yes, definitely, um, definitely. I guess, I guess the other question I have for both of you is, I mean, Marcia, when we were talking, when we first met a few months ago, you also were nervous about society's mm-hmm. reaction to this. I want to ask you, Marcia, about what you were afraid of, but then Peggy, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how did the society react to the podcast? Like, what, so what was the fear? What was going through your head as you're getting ready to release this? The fear for me was about getting things wrong and not being sensitive enough. Yeah, my my own shortcomings. I was just afraid of my blind spots that were not, you know, of course, every edit I made, I sent it to Peggy and asked her what she thought of it. And we had a whole panel of listening people. Yeah. I I just, I, yeah, I was just so afraid of... Um, what did you think people were going to think about the show? Well, I mean, okay, so there were two sides that I was nervous for. At first, it would be the conservative families of like my own family. Of course, I was a little bit nervous about that, like exposing them. But then, you know, I really felt that I had to do that anyway, that there was a greater societal importance that justified that. And then on the other hand, 
I I was very aware of, is this my story to tell? Is this, okay, it is about my family, but it is about slavery. Is it a white person's, a white podcaster's story to tell? And yeah, I was very happy that from both sides, we got very good responses, but still... Of course, yeah, I'm still dealing with some blind blind spots I had. And we we want to make a second season now, and we will try to address that. Peggy, what were some of your thoughts as before you released it? What did you think your fellow citizens would think about this show? Well, I was actually afraid of a lot of negative reactions because not many white people want to talk about a story about the slavery past because many white people want to leave this history behind them. And they have the feeling that if they talk about it, they feel unpleasant. So they don't uh, like to talk about it and they don't want to make me feel a certain way. So a lot of people just ignore the stories and they don't actually ask me, well, what do you think of it? There are not many moments in my career that people, white people come to me and ask me about, well... What do you know about the slavery past? And that they really want to talk about it. Sure. So I was very yeah, afraid about negative reactions. But actually, yeah, the community has responded very good to the podcast. So good. I didn't expect a, the large amount of positive reactions yeah. because people talk to me, people that I know from the past, from school, but also people from work. People send me WhatsApp uh, messages or Facebook, we got a lot of email. We still get, get a lot of email, I think, on a daily basis. Sometimes <laughs> a, uh, there is a day that we don't get an email, and then suddenly one day we get three emails. Yeah. So it's very positive because I think what, what the positive reactions resulted because we didn't only tell the story about the descendants of the people who lived in slavery, but we also told the story about the people who were the slave owners and how they actually got some papers, how they inherited it from their ancestors. So uh, a lot of those people never actually went to Suriname, but they end up with a lot of property. They lived in the Netherlands and they got papers in the Netherlands that they owned a lot of land on the other side of the world. So it's the different perspectives, the different narratives that we did it together and we we shared it. And we shared my perspective, my narrative with Marge and her family and my family. And I think that the, the combination of that is the power of the success of this podcast and also the positive reactions. Because also, even if somebody don't want to hear about the slavery past, But if they hear this story, they're still interested. There is something that their attention. Everyone can relate. Yes, everyone can relate. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And Marcia, you weren't sure if you would do a season two, but I feel like this is season two. Yes. It's it's (laughs) what's happening every day. It's the conversations you're having with us or just with all the talks you're doing around the world. Season two is real life. Exactly. Well, now we have to talk about what do we do with this inheritance exactly. or how, what, what do we do with this past and what do we still live with today? And that's something we t- touched upon in the last episode of the podcast. 
And we brought our families together, actually. And that would have been an opportunity to address this. But we had so much to tell already about the past. I mean, there was so much history to tell and that we didn't really get to that most important part. Like, okay, so what should we do with this now and this still existing inequality? And that's what we want to delve into deeper in season two. Okay, so what happened after the abolition of slavery and how did those power relations still continue to exist in the 20th century? And what did Peggy's family, grandparents experience when they migrated to Holland in the 1960s? And what was the position of my family at that time? So I think those are all very interesting things to delve into. And also, what are we doing with our lives now? And how are we dealing with our family history now? How how does that play a role in our lives? And what responsibility do we feel for that past? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just such a great story. And we so appreciate you sharing this with us. And I think now, so usually on our show at the very end, we do something called speed round. Are you guys ready for speed round? Yes. (laughs) All right. Perfect. What's one thing about you that no one expects? And Peggy, you can go first. Wow. (laughs) I think that people always are a bit surprised to see that I have my own opinion, but I can really connect with everybody. Some people think that when you have a kind of uh, opinion or a, a kind of thinking and you share that opinion with people, that when you're at work, that you can't adjust and talk with everybody. But I'm a kind of person, we can have a difference in opinion, but I can still have a very a pleasant, respectful, and equal conversation where you respect each other. And that is, I think, sometimes when I come to workplaces and people see me, they have a kind of opinion about me. But when we really connect and when they see how I work and how I communicate with everyone, they say, well, that's a very nice... A lot of people don't expect it from me, yes. Because they usually, yeah, my grandma always said, don't take the book by its cover. (laughs) Because that's how a lot of people look at you. They look at the cover and they don't look at the person who is inside. Marcia, what's one thing about you that no one expects? People are always surprised that I'm clumsy and nervous about parties and groups. They always think I'm very straightforward and that I'm full of confidence. But I'm actually dreading going to parties and stuff like that. I'm always very nervous. What is a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? It was Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's won the Booker Prize and it has 12 characters and they're all women of color. And yeah, it's just so vividly painted how their lives intersect. and, And all those lives are like short stories and they all struggle they all they all fight their fight of in society and it's just something that yeah maybe didn't relate to my own life but made me understand women of color better it was a great work of literature yeah peggy what's a book or a movie that has characters that that you like that you relate to 
I think it has to be a movie what has a very powerful woman. I think maybe the movie about Rosa Parks or the movies about the woman who worked at NASA. Hidden figures, hidden figures, yeah. Yeah, hidden figures. Yes, I just love that movie. And I love the women, the strong women who were in environments, white environments, and, and people were just not used to see strong black women who knew what they were talking about. Yeah, I really love the characters in the Hidden Figures, yes. Okay, this next one's my favorite. Peggy, what is your favorite mom dish? My favorite mom dish, that would be rice with, yeah, in Suriname we call it pom. It's a kind of a Jewish dish where you, what you put in the oven with with the Suriname potato kind but it's very, uh, yeah, I, I love it. This, let's say, rice with black beans or something like that. But uh, greens, greens, some, some greens, yes. greens, yes, greens, yes, greens, yes. String beans, string beans is, is the word. Yes, yes. Marcia, what's your favorite mom dish? My mom really can't cook. I'm sorry. She she won't be offended if she hears this. My my dad used to used to cook well. So what's your favorite dad dish then? Yeah. Well, let's see. I I, I remember uh, she made a dessert, spinach and pear ice cream. That's just what comes to the top of my mind now that he was very proud of. Spinach yes, and pear yes, ice cream. Yes, spinach? that he once made a, at a Christmas dinner. Yeah, yeah. He used to always. Yeah, tell exactly what had gone into it, uh, how he made it, uh, how he prepared it. He was always very proud of it, what he cooked. Another for both of you. Peggy, who's someone that you would want to have a conversation with on a podcast? Wow. Right now, if I could have a conversation with a woman on top, it would be Kamala Harris, I think. I'll tell you a funny story. For Christmas, I bought my daughter a Kamala Harris action figure. And oh, really? For show and, yeah. So for show and tell at her school, the letter of the week was V. So V for vice president. So she took her Kamala Harris action figure to show and tell today. Oh, great. Just yeah. great. Yes, yes. Yeah, really, if I could have a choice to talk to a very powerful woman on this moment, I, I guess it would be her. Yes. I would love to talk to her about her journey and what she's been through and what she's headed to, what she wants to achieve. Yes, I would love love to have a conversation with her. Yes. Marcia, who's someone that you would want to have a conversation with on a podcast? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just really bad at this. Uh, My my mind just goes (laughs) all places. I'm coming back to Ira Glass or so, because he can teach me some more about it. But I actually met with him once when he was in Amsterdam for for a conference on storytelling, documentary, of course. So I actually already had dinner with him. So that should not be on my bucket list anymore. But yeah. No, I'm a big Ira Glass fan. It's... uh... Part of where I really started to fall in love with podcasts was because of him and also the guys at Radio Lab. Yes, of course. So, last question What does being a modern minority mean for you? And, March, I'm going to ask you the question first because you said earlier you don't think you are one, but for someone diving into this story, mm-hmm. I, I think you are. So, what does being a modern minority mean for you, Marcia? It means. Yeah, trying to find your way, like, I don't know how to express this, but like you're blind and you're trying to find your way. You're trying to hold on to things to find your way by touch. 
Like, mm. I feel I still have to study much more. I have to try to see things through a different perspective much more. But I also want to bring that message across to other people, to other white people, I should say. And yeah, so that sometimes feels like venturing into the unknown. See what I mean? So, And I think that's what, what Holland yeah. is doing at the moment. We are really trying to to find a new identity and to integrate all these different new perspectives into our sense of self. And it's like, yeah, reinventing yourself a little bit. How can we become a more wholesome country and a more just country? And yeah, that's something I'm trying to figure out for myself as well. What can I do as an independent podcast producer in my profession, in the stories I tell, in my influence into the industry that I work in to integrate these insights that I've now gathered the past few years? Yeah, it, you're speaking to me very directly there, Marcia. It's it's why why we want to do this show, right? To yes, kind of uncover and I stories. love it. I, I really enjoy listening to your show and just the eloquence of people. Sometimes, yeah, I think I would hear... It's the no, other people, no, no, no. it's not it us. <laughs> we it just asked the question. Too. I think you have found a way of speaking about this subject. And I mean, you, the two of you, but I also listen to Code Switch and Rough Translation and all that, yeah, which yeah. is so much yeah, more yeah. advanced than in Europe. And, and we are still trying yeah. to find the words and to get the conversation started. And we're stuttering and, you know, we're falling over. You guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. Well, thank you. Peggy, yes? I want to give you the last word. What does being a modern minority mean for you? Well, what it means to me is I, I want to show everybody that being different and being in the minority doesn't mean uh, minority doesn't matter. Uh, the mm. minority also counts in society and no matter how small that influence or contribution might be or people might think it's small, nothing and, and no one should be underestimated. In today's society, a wide range is always considered powerful, but also a small range or let's say, say it doesn't matter how small the reach may seem, but it's always so important to give everyone attention, uh, not just the masses, but also the people who you don't see when you're on the street, the people mm. who are at home, the people who don't have the ability to connect as much as the masses can connect. It's very important to see everything as a whole because sometimes people think, oh, it's not really significant. But sometimes when people see the magnificent of something, they don't see that it's actually very, how do I say it? It's very, um, the, yeah, it's very important because the, um, so difficult to... How say it in Nederlands? Now, now, van bijvoorbeeld een hele kleine groep, die wel degelijk iets mm -hmm. teweeg kan brengen. Uh, gevoel, emoties, of let's say when a very small group feels a certain way, Mm -hmm. And they feel neglected or uh, abused or not respected. Also, the, the very small group, the minority, can be of great influence when things escalate. The effects escalate. of that can spread widely. Yes, the effect. Mm -hmm. yes. yes. It's like a ripple yes. effect. I think yeah. that's what you yes. want to say. So I think it's very important that you never underestimate how small some masses may think that uh, minorities are. Because eventually it's... It, it touches everyone. Mm -hmm. 
That's that's a beautiful sentiment. Well, Peggy, Marcia, thank you not only for coming on our show and, and sharing your story, but I know it's been a journey, the work you guys have been doing for, for your show. What I love is there are episodes translated into English now, so we'll make yes. sure people check it out. But thank you for continuing to do the work. And it's important work no matter where we are in the world. And these no one is immune to these problems. And, and I love that you're confronting them head on. And you're doing it in such a beautiful and honest way. So thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you for having us and having this uh, beautiful conversation with you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.